Well, there has been quite a bit of ink spilled and trees killed when writing on the subject of Christian living. Some books bigger than others, some pretty small. Some small, but they pack a punch. They're pretty dense. Others a little lighter. Some of my favorites include The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, just a little over 100 pages. Another one is uh, by the, the late, now late, J.I. Packer, Knowing God, about 280 pages in that one. Desiring God by John Piper, about 370 pages. One book that we have in our, our bookstore, uh, The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. That's about 300 pages. So lots of great books, a lot of time spent, pages written on this subject of Christian living. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12. Continuing our study through Luke. If you're keeping count, this is sermon number 50, okay? Sermon number 50 in Luke. I, I looked at it this morning. I'm like, I think we spent like 64 in Acts, so we're, we're going to be way over that. But uh, what, what a place to be stuck, right? In the Gospel of Luke. In this small passage, you know, some of you are like, you need to pick bigger passages so we can get moving, right? But, but uh, this one works for this morning. There's enough here. But in this small passage... Jesus provides his disciples with, with two important principles in this short passage that really encapsulates the Christian life. In this passage, Jesus gives his followers two principles that, if applied, will serve his disciples well in, in molding and making them into whom Christ has called for them and commissioned them to be. There are two words that should be a part of every Christian's vocabulary when it comes to their relationship with God. The first is fear, and the second is trust. Faithful followers of Christ fear God, and faithful followers of Christ trust God. They, they fear their Heavenly Father, and they trust in their Heavenly Father above everything else. We're going to examine those two principles this morning. So if you're not there yet, get there, Luke chapter 12. In last week's passage, we learn that a crowd has surrounded Jesus. Thousands. They are trampling one another to get to him. Now, in the passage before that, remember, Jesus is invited to dinner by religious leaders, and he just drops a, a hand grenade of truth on this dinner table, and then he leaves. And they're on their way to Jerusalem, and while they're on their journey, they're, they're surrounded by thousands, and they're trampling over one another to get to Jesus, and he ignores the crowd at first, and he continues in his instruction of his disciples, and he continues with what the topic was at dinner. He, he warns them on the dangers of Pharisaism. And that's just the, the sin of the Pharisees, the sin of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Jesus is, is troubled by these sins that, that the religious leaders were struggling with. And so he takes time at first, he ignores the crowd at first, 
and he takes time to instruct his disciples further on this. I believe because he knows they're going to be in leadership in the early church. He addresses this issue with the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the leaders of the Pharisees. They led those following them astray. They took away the key of knowledge, Jesus said. They led those following them into error. He tells the Pharisees, you're like unmarked graves. You're defiled and everyone following you will be defiled as well. And then he warns his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, their, their wicked influence in this way. And he lets his disciples know, you are not exempt from this struggle. And so he warns them, I believe for the sake of the early church, that they would be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And we learned last week that, that we're not exempt from this either. This has been a struggle in, in our church today. And to motivate them to be on guard against this mentality as they follow Christ and serve Him in ministry, Jesus points them forward to that, that future and final day of judgment when the hypocritical and the self-righteous, the unrepentant and the self-reliant will be exposed and will be judged. Jesus warns his disciples that in that final day of judgment, all that's in the darkness is going to come to light. Those who appear to be outwardly religious will be exposed for who they truly are, whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside but dead on the inside. He lets them know that, that Pharisaism doesn't ultimately work in the end. Because what, what hypocrisy is, it was actually used in the Greek language in reference to an actor performing behind a mask. That's what hypocrisy is. It, it seeks to put forth something not true about yourself so that others perceive you in a certain way, in a positive light, and it, and it veils who you really are. And Jesus lets them know on the day of judgment, Pharisaism won't work. He warns them on that day of judgment, all that is in the dark will come to light. Whatever you have said in the dark, he says, shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the housetops. Masks will be removed on that day. You may be really good at putting up a front, appearing one way when you are in fact another, but on that day we said the most gifted of charlatans will not be able to hide the world from who they truly were in the world. Well, today Jesus is continuing with this instruction of his disciples. He's been calling them to faithfulness, and in our passage for today, he tells them that their faithfulness will result in them being rejected by these religious leaders and persecuted at their hands. He warns them that when this happens, when they experience this rejection, that is not to cause them to fear man more than they fear God and question the love and care of their Heavenly Father. Jesus calls for them to fear God and trust in Him more. I'm going to read this passage for you, and then we'll discuss these principles. Let's look at it. Luke chapter 12, 
verses 4 through 7. This is God's Word, believers. Hear the Word of the Lord. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Count how many times he's saying fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Let's pray. Father, speak to us this morning by your Spirit through your Word. When tough times come for your people, may we not fear person or circumstance more than we fear you, and may we not question your love and care for us. Equip your people today with this truth for ministry. We pray that you would reach the lost also with this message. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Two essential principles on the Christian life from this passage. One, Christ's disciples do not fear the torment of man, but fear God. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So after warning his disciples to not follow in the, in the footsteps of the Pharisees, Jesus tells his disciples that by faithfully following him, they are going to be rejected and persecuted by them, by those religious leaders that they're not to follow. This would have hit home for the readers in Luke's day when he's writing this because at this time when this gospel is written, persecution is in full swing. Many of them had been rejected by family, many of the Jewish Christ followers. They had been put out of the synagogues. They had been arrested, jailed, beaten, and many of them put to death. And Jesus chooses to focus in on the worst of all of these consequences. And he urges his disciples to not be fearful of them, but instead be fearful of him. Be fearful of God. He basically says the worst thing that they can do to you is kill you physically. That's the worst. Now, if your hope is in this life, and in this life only, that's the worst news in the world, isn't it? Many, if you ask them what their greatest fear is, they'll tell you it's a fear of dying, and dying in some sort of terrible way. But get this, Jesus says, if your perspective is spiritual and eternal, if you share the perspective of your Savior, that should not be your greatest concern. Jesus says, what can man ultimately do to you? 
He or she can take your life physically, but not spiritually. There have been some people who in anger have told other people to go to the place of torment that we read about in Scripture. And there have been others who have, who have expressed a desire for one of their enemies to burn for all eternity there. But get this, they cannot send them there. Jesus says, don't fear man. Don't fear persecution. Don't fear those who can harm you physically. Fear the one who holds your life in his hands, both physically and spiritually. Look on him with holy terror. And, and fear the one who has that kind of power. And may that cause you, believers, to draw near to him in faith. Some of you think it's strange, me talking about fearing God this morning, but we're called to do it in Scripture. In fact, we're told it's the beginning of wisdom. Now, this is not the type of fear that sinful man has or sinful creatures have in God's presence, like the demons in Adam and Eve who cower in the shadows, longing to be away from the presence of God. It's a fear that draws, not retracts. It's a fear that draws true Christ followers closer to God and produces a desire in them to be separated from the darkness and closer to the light. It's a fear that draws, not retracts. It's a fear that produces boldness in Christ's followers to endure suffering at the hands of God's enemies for His purposes and for his glory. Spurgeon, in a sermon he preached on the fear of God, said this. Look at this quote on the screen. There is that lawful, necessary, admirable, excellent fear, which is always due from the creature to the creator, from the subject to the king, yes, and from the child toward the parent. That holy fear of God, which makes us dread sin and constrains us to be obedient to his command. We had fathers of our flesh. We gave them reverence. Shall we not be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? This is the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, to have a holy awe of our most holy, just, righteous, and tender parent is a privilege, not a bondage. This is what I believe Jesus is calling for here in this passage. He's calling for his disciples to have this perspective in light of God's coming judgment. We are to live as believers for two days. We're to live where God has us today with that final day in mind. That's the way we're to live our lives Christ calls for his disciples to have an eternal perspective. He does that in both passages. In, in verses 1 through 3 of Luke 12 as well. We talked about that last week. Again, when warning his disciples of the dangers of hypocrisy, he calls for them to live their life today faithfully with that day in mind. In light of that future day, he basically tells them, again, don't Live to be outwardly righteous, to be 
perceived in a certain way when you are inwardly wicked because in that day what is in you is going to be brought out of you and you're going to be exposed for who you really are for all the world to see. On that day people will see that your spiritual life was nothing but empty religious ritual which is nothing. It's nothing if that's all that there is to you spiritually. Because there is coming a day when all is going to be laid bare, when nothing will remain hidden. In the end, again, darkness will come to light. Mask will be removed. Everything in darkness will be brought to light and revealed. Whatever you have said in the dark, Jesus says, shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And here in verses 4 and 5, Jesus calls for his disciples once again to have an eternal perspective. He tells them, do not be controlled by a present fear of persecution and death. Live your life in fear of the one who is able to kill both physically and spiritually. To the one who after he is killed physically has the authority to cast into hell. That is who you are to fear. The one with that sort of power. There is only one who has the authority to do that, folks, and it's not Satan. Satan can't move an inch without God's permission. God is the only one with this type of authority. Jesus tells his disciples that God's authority is judge, his judgment, his wrath should cause us to tremble. It should be what motivates us and moves us at present. You are to approach Him with a holy reverence, longing to live a life that is pleasing to Him. It amazes me that in these two short passages, Jesus uses the judgment of God as motivation for Christian living, while many so-called ministers today, they go a lifetime in ministry and never even bring up this doctrine, the judgment of God. And if they do, they don't speak of it in a positive way. This teaching saturates Scripture. It soaks the teaching of Jesus, yet it doesn't even drizzle from many pulpits today. That's a tragedy. Jesus mentions it not once, but twice. In the first part of Luke 12 and elsewhere as well. But he's making the point here. That which is spiritual and eternal is to be what motivates his disciples for ministry. Follow me here. Follow this here. This is worth you coming in. If your motivation for following Jesus is earthly, your faithfulness will only go so far. If you're serving the Lord for, for what you get out of it in this life, for prosperity, for health and wealth and happiness in the here and now, you're only going to follow Jesus. And I use the air quotes there because it's not truly following Jesus for those reasons. But you'll only continue down that path as long as you get those things. And the moment you don't have those things, you will leave never to return. It happens all the time. Jesus tells us our motivation for following him is to be heavenly and not earthly. It should be eternal and not temporal so that we will be completely faithful to him no matter what all the way to the end. 
He says, don't fear those who can kill your body. Fear the one who has the authority to cast not only your body, but your soul into hell. Fear God because he is in charge of everyone and everything. He holds life physically and spiritually in his hands. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on Luke, says this. Look at this quote. This is just a great synopsis of this passage. The fear of God is the fear that conquers all other fears. For the person who truly fears God need fear nothing else. All that men can do is kill the body, but God can condemn the soul. Since he is the final judge and he judges for eternity, it is logical that we put the fear of God ahead of everything else. Good summary. Now while the fear of God involves real fear, holy terror and reverence, we do not fear God like a child would, would fear an alcoholic and abusive father. One whose behavior is unpredictable and erratic and volatile and unstable. That is not how God operates. He is perfectly just and eternally good. Righteous and wrathful? Yes. And loving and merciful. While he opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble all the time, every day. I'm reminded when thinking about how to approach God as carefully, stepping lightly, right? I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's classic book, the fictional book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when one of the kids asked about Aslan, who's a picture of Christ, he's a lion. And he asked, is he safe? And he says, no, he's not safe, but he's good. Good. We're to tread lightly, we're to approach him in reverence and holy fear, but also resting in who he is as he is revealed in his word. We're to, we're to approach him reverently, and we can also rest in his unchanging attributes and know that if we approach him in a manner worthy of him, repentant and believing on his son, we will by no means be cast out of his presence. And if we live our lives in relationship with Him for His purposes and for His glory, there is nothing man can do to remove the joy that comes from living in relationship with our Creator. That's the point that Jesus is making. There's a story about John Chrysostom. For those of you all that don't know him, he's an early church father. For those of you all who stuck with us, Throughout our two years study of church history, he was in the early part. He lived before the time of the Middle Ages. He and Augustine and, and Gregory of Nazianzus, they all had faithful moms. So moms be faithful, right? They poured into their sons and instructed them in the truth. And he became a Christ follower. And there's a story of him when he's standing before the Roman Emperor Arcadius during Roman persecution. And, and Arcadius is threatening him with banishment if he does not stop preaching Christ. And of course he refused. And the emperor was reported as saying, if you do not stop, you'll be banished. To which Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. He said, then I'll slay you, 
Chrysostom replied, No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. So Arcadius said, Your treasures will be confiscated. He said, Sir, that cannot be. My treasures are in heaven where none can break through and steal. And so he said, I will drive you from men and you will have no friends. And Chrysostom said, That you cannot do either, for I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. What a perspective. Believers, that's to be our perspective. This should be your mentality as a Christ follower. If you have Christ, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. You have been brought out of the courtroom where you're declared not guilty into the living room of your heavenly father. You have been adopted. You're a child of his. And you have everything you could ever need. You need not be fearful of what man can do. Instead, just be fearful of what the Father can and will do. Draw near to Him in faith and follow Him. Ligon Duncan says this, You believe that God is sovereign. He is almighty. He is in control of everything. And if you love Him, trust Him, value Him, adore Him, hold Him above everything else, what can anyone do to you? What can anyone take away from you? Boy, there's a lot of fear about today, even with those in the church, about what man can do to them or what man can take from them. You have everything you need spiritually in Christ. This was the issue with the Pharisees. They pretended to fear God, but truth be told, they cared more about what, what man thought about them than what God truly knew about them. They were more concerned with reputation than they were true character, what people thought rather than what God knew and what God could and would do to them in judgment. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Where is your trust this morning? What are you trusting in? Where's your hope? What do you fear? What, what motivates and, and moves you? Is your hope in Christ? Is your mind on that which is spiritual and eternal? And is that what motivates and moves you? Or do you trust in what man thinks and are your thoughts temporal and present and earthly? Perspective makes all the difference. What you know, the way in which you think, what you believe, will determine the way in which you live and how you fare on the day of judgment. Next point. We've got to move quickly. I'll move quickly here, okay? Point number two. Do not question the care of God, but trust in the love of God. Look at verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. 
You are of more value than many sparrows. While Jesus' disciples are called to fear the judgment of God, they're also not, they're, they're called not to call into question the, the care of, and they're called to trust in the love of God. There's a delicate balance there for the believer of fear and trust that I believe produces a holy reverence for God. While we're called to fear Him, we're called to have this, this holy terror when considering that, that our Creator holds life physically and spiritually in His hands, while that's to cause us to draw near to Him cautiously in holy reverence of Him, we're also called not to call into question His goodness. We are to tremble before His holiness, but we are also to rejoice in and rest in His love. When tough times come, the first thing that many question is whether or not God cares and if He's good. Those questions come. Jesus assures us here that He is. Notice the comparison here. Jesus does this a lot. This is called the comparison of lesser to greater. Jesus does this a lot. It's done in the epistles as well. But look at what he says here. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Sparrows were the boniest and cheapest of food sold in the marketplace. I read where five scrawny birds could be purchased for two asaria, which were copper coins worth one-sixteenth of an unskilled laborer's wage for the day. I mean, this is cheap food, okay? Jesus says, not one of them is forgotten before God. How much more so is that true of you? If that's true of scrawny, bony, cheap sparrows. If the plight of sparrows doesn't escape the compassionate care of their creator, how much more so is that true of God's faithful followers whom he has created in his image to know him and live for him whom he values and esteems more, of all, more than all of his creation? Very simple but clear teaching that Christ gives here. It gives us a whole lot, right, in the way we're to view ourselves. Motivation for living faithfully here. Jesus says, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you're more value than many sparrows. Are you suffering today? Have you been guilty of questioning the care and compassion of God. Jesus says here, God knows the number of hairs on your head. One who takes this much thought and consideration in you is not someone who is uncaring and indifferent, but one who is compassionate and considerate and kind and caring and attentive and loving. Rest in that truth, believers. Don't question his care. Rest in his love. Let me leave you this morning with this thought. Consider the fact 
that the one teaching these principles to his disciples also lived these principles out as an example for them. What I love about the ministry of Jesus, he not only was a hearer of the word, a knower of the word, a teacher of the word, he was a doer of the word. He was an example for what he taught. Whenever you read the teachings of Jesus, uh, a helpful thing to do is also to think about his ministry in his life and death and resurrection and think about ways in which Christ fulfilled those things. He was an example of those things in which he taught, and we see that in his life. Think about it. Jesus did not fear those wanting to kill him, did he? In fact, he went to Jerusalem for the purpose of laying his life down in order to save them. What caused Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest and trial and beating and crucifixion was not the physical death on the cross, but enduring the wrath of the Father for the sins of his people. It was drinking from the cup. Yet he went anyway. He endured death and wrath for us in our place so that we could be rescued from that wrath, so that we could be forgiven so that we could be restored, so that we could be saved. Jesus also never questioned the Father's goodness, did he? While he asked for the cup to pass from him, he embraced God's will for him, and he willingly drank that cup at Calvary so that we might be saved. He came to live, die, and rise again in order to save us from God's wrath and restore us to a right relationship with him and the question I want to leave you with this morning and those of you watching online is this have you been rescued from God's wrath have you been forgiven of your sin have you been restored to a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ if not I invite you today forsake your sin turn from your sin Place your faith and trust in Christ alone and be saved. Surrender to him. Bow to him as Lord today. Give your life up and over to him and be saved today. Let's pray together.